0: Please join me by turning together in your Bibles to John chapter 17, the Gospel of John, the 17th chapter. We are considering this portion of John's Gospel in a lengthy series. And it found in this chapter what we call the Lord's Prayer, not the one that most people call the Lord's Prayer, but this one indeed is his unique prayer of intercession, which not only was prayed just before his sacrifice for the sins of his people, but also provides for us something of a model or of a prototype or of the substance of his ongoing intercessory prayer for us, his people, as he sits at the right hand of God on high. We have defined this major goal of this prayer in the words of the first three verses. Please follow as I read John 17, verses 1 through 3. These things spake Jesus, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him. He should give eternal life, and this is life eternal, that they should know you, the only true God, and him whom you did send, even Jesus Christ. Please again join me as we pray together and ask for our God's help in his word. Father, we pray that you would overshadow and overcome all the frailties and weaknesses and unworthinesses of man and give help to your servant in the preaching of your holy word and to the hearer in its hearing. Give unto us, O Lord, the power of your Spirit that the truth may be applied to our hearts and find a dwelling place there. Remove from us the places and the areas and the practices of our lives that are not in conformity to your law and bring our hearts submissive to the Lord Jesus. O God, accomplish that this morning which we don't know how to accomplish. Do the work of your own will and your own pleasure here, setting poor sinners free from their sins and strengthening the body of your Son, the Church, that it may do its work in this world to His glory. Lord, do not withhold from us. Your Spirit do not reward us according to our iniquities. We don't ask on the ground of our own merits, but on the ground of the righteous merits and accomplishments of Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do give reward to His sufferings this morning. Do satisfy Him with added members to His church. Do, O oh Lord, work here, open our hearts, help our weakness, strengthen our resolve and may er, give us understanding and obedient hearts to your word. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Now we have considered in our opening sermons on this passage of scripture that the ultimate goal of the Lord Jesus life on this earth and His ongoing life, is to glorify His Father. Even as He prayed in this passage in verse 1, Glorify Thy Son, that the Son may glorify Thee. His whole purpose for coming into the world was to make His Father known and praised and honored. And then we saw that the chief means by which He achieves the glory of His Father is by the glorification of Himself. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. And so in the exaltation of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, the world is made to see God for what He is. God in His purity and His hatred of sin. So that in order to save sinners from their sins, He had to punish His own Son with death. And then to see God in His grace, that in the punishing of His Son... He shows how much He loves sinners. In not sparing His own beloved unique Son, He showed His love for sinners in that while they were yet sinners, Christ died for them. And He saved them from their own disobedience and rebellion. Though they were not seeking Him, He sought them. And then we've begun to examine the particular point at which the glory of Christ is seen. And it's in this that He gives eternal life to His people. And we're examining the biblical doctrine, therefore, of eternal life. We're defining it, and we've defined it in these ways. We've seen its essence. The essence of eternal life is to know God. If you don't know God, you don't have eternal life. If you know God, you do have it. Knowing God means more than knowing about God, or believing there is a God, or having some acquaintance with His ways. It means to have an intimate acquaintance with Him as a person. Personal communion with God. Intimate, real, lively, vital. That's the quality of the essence of knowing God in His Son. And this quality of life is one that's unaffected by time and eternity. It's eternal life. It goes on forever, and it has to do with reality beyond what we see and beyond what we feel and beyond the constraints of space and time. Eternal life. We defined it. And now we're considering the recipients of eternal life. Who are those who have it? How do you know if you have it? Can you know that you have eternal life? And if so, how? And we have described the recipients of eternal life in four ways, or at least we're in the process of so doing. First of all, they are those given to Christ by the Father through sovereign selection. In verse 2 of John 17 we read, "...even as you gave Him authority." over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, He should give eternal life. The Son of God gives eternal life to a particular people, and they are the people who were given to Him by the Father before He ever created the world, before they were ever born or made. God, who knew them, gave them to His Son, So that when his Son came into the world, he might exercise his sovereign authority as Savior and save, as we read in Matthew 1, his people from their sins, the people given to him by his Father according to his own sovereign will, our total inability to understand why he would do it except that it pleased him. So, to do it. So, that's the first description of the recipients of eternal life. Those given to Christ by his Father through sovereign selection. And then, in the second place, we describe the recipients of eternal life as those who believe upon Christ as he is presented in the gospel. In other words, they do not merely obtain eternal life. By osmosis. It's not just theirs by birth. They don't have it when they're born. They come into the world dead in their trespasses and sins. Dead unto God. With nothing in them of themselves driving them to do anything that saves men. They are incapable and yes they are unwilling to do anything unto salvation. They may do much in the name of religion. They may do much in their own minds to please God and keep Him off their back. But they never do anything that ultimately moves them close to God. They are estranged from the womb. They come forth speaking lies. And every child, every man and woman in this room has come into the world a sinner by nature. That's why we sin. Because it's our nature to sin. That's why we do as we do. We're selfish by nature. We're proud by nature. We fuss with our siblings because that's the way we are. We get resentful when they take our toys. We get resentful when they keep theirs and don't let us have them. We fuss and fight because we come into the world that way. The whole world revolves around us. And everything is to serve us. That's the way we are. So we do not become... Children of God and have eternal life just by coming into the world. Not even by the fact that God has chosen us unto eternal life and given us to his Son. Something must happen for that to become our possession. We must believe upon Christ. He gives the gift of eternal life, but he gives it only to faith. He gives it to those who believe. Now, is it because they earn it by their faith? No. Faith is their doing. God does not believe in the place of the sinner. He doesn't do the believing for us. It's our faith that's exercised. But God gives the faith to those whom He's given to His Son. They would never believe on Christ unless it were given to them of God. That's why in John's Gospel, chapter 6, we're told, No man can come to me unless the Father which gave them to me draws them. You cannot come unless you're brought. Blessed is the man whom the Lord chooses and causes to come near to him. So God, in his sovereign good love and election, chooses men, gives them to Christ, but they must come. So he gives them faith and they find themselves willingly coming to Christ in faith in the day of the exertion of his power. And so God saves men, women, children who come to believe on Christ as he's presented in the gospel. He saves nobody but believers. You do not have a guarantee of life with God and the life of God unless you come to Christ. He's the only Savior. He's the sufficient Savior. Nobody else needs help Him to save you. He alone saves, and no one else will get the glory or share in the glory of His saving work. Not the sinner who believes, because even his faith is the gift of God. Not the world and its religious system. No one can help Christ save a sinner. He saves all by himself because he is a sufficient Savior. He's a sovereign Savior, meaning that he's the Lord as well as the Savior. And if you believe on him, you submit to him as king. If you don't want him to rule over you, you can never have him as your Savior. He's not just the Savior. He's the Lord and the savior Jesus Christ and for you to claim that you know him but not submit to his right to rule every particle of your life you make yourself a liar and the truth is not in you you do not have eternal life on those terms he's a sovereign savior and he's a savior from sins he did not come merely into the world to dole out goodies forever to self-centered self-indulgent people He came to save us from our sins, from the guilt and the condemnation of our sins, from the wrath that comes from God upon our sins, and from the love and the practice and the power of our sins. The Lord Jesus Christ must be believed as He's presented in the Gospel in order for us to have eternal life. But that is not all. And this morning we have two other points that we want to draw out in describing those who possess eternal life. In order to apprehend precisely and completely what this saving faith is that we've just mentioned, in other words, what is it to believe upon Christ as he's presented in the gospel? We've defined how he's presented in the gospel, but what is it to believe? What kind of faith is saving faith. We must add that eternal life is the possession in the third place, not only of those who were given to Christ by the Father through sovereign selection, not only to those who believe upon Him as presented in the Gospel, but to further understand what that believing means, He, is, he gives eternal life to those who live in accordance with the true fruit of such faith, to those who live in accordance with the true fruits of such faith. The reason we add it, you might say, well, there's no need to say this, because if saving faith is properly understood, and if you really believe on Him, uh, that takes care of this. But we have to say it, because many do not mean by saving faith what the Bible means by it. Many believe that they have eternal life without reference to the way they live. They have it in them, but you can never see it on them. They think they know God, but they don't act like people who know God. They claim to love Him, but they don't conduct themselves in a way that could give them away in a court of law if we look for evidence. One man, as I think we've shared in this place before, Several years ago, and my family and I went down to a, a missionary conference way back in the uh, pre-Calvin days. And we were actually, it was sort of the mid-Calvin days. We were in the transition in our understanding of biblical truth. And we went to North Carolina, and went to a wonderful conference, uh, planning ourselves to uh, go to the mission field and preach the gospel in Southeast Asia. And in the midst of all the application procedures, one night a man preached during the conference, an Ethiopian agricultural Southern Baptist missionary. And he was there in Ethiopia as a training, teaching farmers how to farm. They would not accept preaching missionaries in Ethiopia. That was under a Marxist government at the time, but they would take an agricultural missionary. And so he went over to teach people to farm as a foreign missionary and to look for opportunities in the context of that to bear witness to Christ. Well, he got up to preach, this agricultural missionary. And he preached a wonderful sermon on the sovereignty of God, which virtually exploded that place and caused great trouble in all the hearers, or most of them. And he declared that even the Marxist government of Ethiopia was God's appointment. That God had put those governors there. And that, and it just blew the minds of all the men sitting there. But one of the things he did in his sermon while he created great difficulty for those that hadn't read that part of Isaiah that he preached on, he asked a question. He asked the congregation, and it was, I guess there were 2,500, 3,000 people there. He said, How many of you love the Lord? And virtually every hand in the auditorium went up. And then he said, Well, I have another question. How many of you live Obedient to the Lord and obeying in His commandments, and about twelve hands went up, sheepishly at best, and a lot were were not sure how to answer that. And there was a quiet that came and a pause in his sermon, and he looked at the congregation and he said, "Folks, it was the same question. How many of you love the Lord? How many of you obey the Lord?" the same question. Not two different questions. You ought to answer them the same way. He that says, I love God, and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. And so we must define what saving faith is before we jump to the conclusion that we have it and therefore we have eternal life. My purpose is to free some of you from the delusion that you have swallowed from Satan and thinking that you're alive to God when you're really not, and thereby to lead you in the path of running to Christ, repenting from that delusion, and claiming Him as He ought to be claimed, and serving Him as He ought to be served. I want you to be saved. And I want you to be saved from the the illusionment that you are saved on any other terms than gospel terms. I want to free you from the popular notion of our day that saving faith is no more than mental assent to historical facts about Jesus, or in some people's mind, just a good feeling that surely in the end God's going to let you in, or in some people's mind, the repetition of certain prayers or statements with our eyes closed, feeling sincere, thereby having prayed the prayer we must. Have eternal life. Or even because a preacher or an evangelist or a personal soul winner told me that I must have eternal life because I told him I believed a certain verse in the Bible that he had read to me. And he says, if you believe that, then I can assure you that you are saved. And some of us who at the moment felt sincerely believing what we read were convinced that we have eternal life, but nothing changed. And we don't live as though we have it and yet we still think we do. I want to free you from that illusion which, which, which will damn your soul and condemn you and destroy you. Others, I want to help you understand how to discern in your life that you really have eternal life by looking at your re- response and your relationship to the fruits of saving faith. Now, do I have biblical grounds, other than the text or two that I've quoted, to assert that only those who live in accordance with with the true fruits of saving faith have a right to claim that they have eternal life. Is that really biblical? Or is it simply the outgrowth of this movement of legalism and the restoration of puritanism that's typical among some of us in our day? In our frustration with church members not living right, are we trying to bind their consciences to do right by scaring them into thinking that if they don't obey all the commandments of the Bible, they won't go to heaven. Is that what we're trying to do? No, no. First of all, we know there's not a person in this room that's obeying all the commandments of the Bible perfectly. Nobody here is obeying any of them perfectly, much less all of them. So we're not about to preach that unless you obey perfectly the law of God, you can't be saved. That is the worst possible thing to preach. It's the furthest thing from the gospel. That's not the point. And we're not trying to use it as an unbiblical or extra-biblical motivation to get so-called Christians motivated by fear. It's not our purpose. We preach it because we're convinced it's biblical. That unless you are living in accordance with the true fruits of saving faith, you can't claim to possess saving faith. Now, what is our biblical basis? Well, we don't have time to go through the whole Bible, but we'll give you some passages. First of all, turn to John chapter 5. John 5, and we were talking between Sunday school and the morning worship about repetition and teaching and preaching, and after I made my comments earlier, someone commended our repetition and said, we do need to hear repetition, and it is good for us. There are a lot of reasons for that, and I do believe that. One is that our preaching is not always real clear, and it's good for us to say it three or four times so you know what we meant. Sometimes your hearing is not all that clear, and it's good to hear it a second or third time, and you may be more in the mood to hear it the second or third time than you were the first time. Another reason is that we often forget what we heard. Uh, Sometimes by Sunday afternoon, about lunchtime, uh, the morning sermon has drifted into the fog. And often by next Thursday, we don't even remember what was preached. And it's good to have it reminded. Plus, the devil is quite active in our lives, to bring to draw away the intensity and the firmness and the confidence of the things we've believed for years so that some of us in this room that are convinced of God's sovereignty often forget it in the midst of pressure and trouble and difficulty. Some of us who are convinced of God's promises often forget them when trouble occurs and we become afflicted and we're afraid He left us and has forgotten His Word and we don't even remember those verses that two or three days ago were of great comfort to us. Repetition is good. But another reason for repetition in this case is that these are things that don't go down well in our consciences. We are a people by nature who tend not to want to be told about duty and responsibility. And we don't want to be reminded of sins, real sins that need to be forsaken and confessed. And so we must repeat it again and again. And we live in a society that is antinomian, anti-law, against the laws of God and do not want to submit to it. We live in a culture filled with carnal minds who are not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, but are at enmity with the law of God. And so we repeat this doctrine in case you feel you've already got it nailed down, then welcome, you can help us preach it by praying for those poor souls who are more ignorant than you are. But in case you think you need to learn, welcome to repetition. Those who live in accordance with the true fruits of such faith, it's proven in John 5, verse 28. This is in the context of Christ asserting again his authority as the Son of God to save the world, whom he pleases. He says, Marvel not, in verse 28 of John 5, at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the tomb shall hear his voice. Now, what are they going to do when they hear his voice? They're going to be, they're, these are people in the tombs. Now, think of all those in the tombs. Get a mental picture of what lies in the tombs of the world this morning. Get beyond the ones that just died last week or last month. Get back to the ones that have been in there for generations. And all that you can find in there are the dust and the remains of the calcium deposits left by their bones they're going to hear his voice. Now that's an amazing doctrine to me. Now you would think if the Lord were rational at all and wanted to convince people of his theology, he would never assert such a radical statement. Nobody expects a pile of dust to hear anything. It's one of the confirmations of biblical truth that the Lord has such audacity to say things that nobody could possibly believe. It's certainly no methodology to get people to think he's reasonable. You have to see beyond the rationale to understand what he's declaring. And he's declaring implicitly here that our bodies are connected with with ourselves in such a way that it is not God's will that we ever permanently be separated from our bodies. Physical death is temporary separation between the body and soul. But it is not God's will that that be the permanent arrangement. He made us a psychosomatic entity. And we're going to stick together in eternity that way. So the day is coming when these bodies destined for eternity are going to hear the voice of the Son of God. What power that voice has that dust can hear it. They'll hear it. But there's something that they're going to do. And shall come forth, verse 29 says. They're not just going to hear. They're going to come out of those tombs. If they have been, you say, well, what about... um, What about if they were blown to smithereens or maybe they were burned and their ashes were scattered in the ocean? God will pull them all together. It will all come back. You think the Lord, he pulled it together when they formed them the first time. You think he's going to have any trouble getting them back together when he's ready? What kind of faith do you have? Where did you start? Where did he get all of the parts in you? He got it from vegetables and meat and junk food. That's what's sitting here this morning. Maybe a whole lot of the latter. Where would you come from? You didn't start out this way. Well, how did you get these parts from the ground? The dirt and the minerals that produce the vegetation. And you either ate the vegetation or you ate the animals that ate the vegetation. God pulls you together from the dust of the ground. What well, big deal is going to do it again? Use a little logic on you. Help, help diffuse some of your foolishness in your arguments against Christ. They'll come forth. But look what it says. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life. And they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment. Now notice, there's one resurrection made up of two types of people. In a sense, there are two resurrections, but they're all, they both happen at the same time. All in the tombs, all come out, all at the same time, but there's two, they're divided into halves. One half of them, resurrection of life. They're resurrected, but it's the resurrection of life. The other half, they're resurrected, but it's the resurrection of judgment, of condemnation. It doesn't mean that one half of them become alert and aware, and they are, in our terms, physically alive, and the others don't. That's not the point. They both become alert and aware. They both take their bodies and form them back up and come out of the tombs, but one of them is in the resurrection of life. The quality of life that we defined, of blessed, intimate communion with God forever. The others, the resurrection of condemnation, cursed separation from God forever, in torment. But notice the relationship between the resurrection of life and doing good, and the resurrection of judgment and doing evil. These are not just arbitrary decisions made by the judge. There is ground for these decisions in the moral and ethical lives of the people. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life. They that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment. As the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but they that do the will of my Father which is in heaven. Somebody says, yeah, I know about that verse, Pastor Ellen, but have you forgotten that when they asked him what is the will of the Father, he said, this is the will of him that sent me, that they believe on him whom he sent. And I know people who have so used the Scriptures... That they've said, all right, it is right that you'll only go to heaven if you do the will of God. But what is the will of God? Well, Jesus has come into the world to reduce it down to its lowest common denominator. You don't have to worry about the law anymore. He came to save us from the law. We're not under the law. And they quote the text, of scripture, the way the devil does. He came to deliver us from the law. All you have to do now to be saved, not the way the old covenant people had to do. They had to obey the law. But now all you have to do is believe in Jesus. That's the will of God. That is what it means to do the will of God. That is the good that they did that got them saved. Well, what I'm asserting to you is that, yes, it is true that all you do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to live. But I'm saying that believing on the Lord Jesus Christ involves ethical and moral behavior without which you cannot claim that it's true saving belief. In James chapter 2, if you will turn there, nothing could be clearer. Some have been so troubled in their understanding of justification by faith that they had problems believing this could possibly have been included in the original scripture. This is an offensive and difficult passage to the man that likes to do his sins on his way to heaven. James chapter 2, verse 17. Even so, faith, if it have not works, is dead in itself. Yea, a man will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one. And it's as though James says, You believe God is one? Congratulations. He says, You do well. Good. Good. Congratulations. The devils also believe and shudder. They believe God is one. They believe that God sent His Son into the world. They were there. They opposed Him at every step. They believe he died on the cross to save his people from their sins. They believe God raised him from the dead. They believe they witnessed him entering into heaven in his ascension. They believe he's coming again. That's why they spend so much time trying to make you forget the fact that he's coming again. They believe and they shudder. Doesn't mean they tremble with rejoicing. Doesn't mean they tremble with the holy Gospel fear, it means they shudder knowing that the day he comes, their, their days are ended. They are angry because they know their time is short. They shudder in their believing. So their believing is not saving believing. It's some other kind. He says to him, you believe that God is one, you do well. But verse 20 says... Will you know, O vain man? You see what kind of man it is that believes that faith without any reference to works is saving faith? He's vain. It's a useless claim. What a vain thought. What a what a frustrating and useless thing, oh vain man, that faith apart from works is barren. Then he uses Abraham as the example. And verse twenty four he says, You see that by works a man is justified and not only by faith. What is he saying? Is he confusing the gospel? Did James have one theology and Paul have another? Paul who says we're justified by faith alone, and James says, I'm sorry, have to have works. What is he saying? He's saying that you are justified by faith alone, but never by a faith that is alone. It's faith alone that justifies. Faith in Christ, more precisely, that justifies. But never is that faith apart from works. It's never a faith that stands over by itself and doesn't transform the life. You say, well, that sounds logical, and it's the only way to reconcile James with Paul, but I'm not convinced. Well, let's move on. To prove that it's biblical, turn to Acts chapter 26. Acts 26. Verse 20. Do not forget that this comes from the lips of a man whose entire life is lived under the sense of debt to preach the gospel of Christ to every kind of person he can find in the world. He's under the burden of a passion for souls. His heart bleeds for his own countrymen, the Jews, that they may be saved. He himself is able to wish himself cut off from Christ if that would save his people from their sins. He himself travels the world and is defeated and persecuted and bludgeoned and hated and ridiculed and demeaned for one reason. He loves the souls of men, Gentiles and Jews. Here's a man that is missionary par excellence, soul winner number one, an evangelist of evangelists, the Apostle Paul. And he speaks to King Agrippa under arrest in verse 19 of Acts 26 with this great burden he has to face the people saved. He says, Wherefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient under the heavenly vision. But here's what he he did as, as a result of the call of Christ. I declared both to them of Damascus first and at Jerusalem and throughout all the country of Judea and also to the Gentiles what? That they should repent and turn to God doing works worthy of repentance. This is the gospel preacher Paul who describes his preaching ministry as to its substance. When I preach Christ alone, faith alone, what did I preach? Turn to God and do works that prove you really turn to God. Works fitting for repentance. This is no different from John the Baptist. When many came out to be baptized of John and to identify themselves with the kingdom of God which he was preaching, many of them he said to them, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You traits out here with your confidence that as soon as you go into the water, you'll be in on the in crowd and you'll be with God's people. I tell you, you've forgotten wrath is coming upon you, you vipers. You snakes in the grass. Who warned you to flee? Because that's what's going on here. People are fleeing from wrath. People are removing themselves from the just wrath of God. If you do this, this is not just joining up some movement here. This is not merely identifying yourself with a little group of people called Christians or what have you. People are, discovering, are delivering their souls from imminent death and destruction in this. Who warned you to flee from the wrath of God? And then what he says, bring forth works, meet for repentance. Works fitting for your claims of repentance. You want to have the, the emblem of repentance in baptism? Then have the life of repentance in obedience with your works. You said, what kind of works is he talking about? Well, you remember John the Baptist. I believe it was in Luke 3 or uh, in that section there. He says to the, to the soldiers, um, don't uh, extort money. Don't.' He says to the publicans and the tax collectors, don't charge more than you have coming to you. He tells, says to the soldiers, be content with your wages. Quit fussing about your income. Quit being angry against your employers. He talks, and in, in, in everyone except maybe one of those exhortations about works fitting for repentance, he's dealing with the attitude about money. Do we have a place to preach that in America? Does, will that apply? Will that preach today to you? You see, some of you would never think of going out and, and uh, lying face-to-face to someone. You would never think of committing adultery against your wife or against your husband Physically, You would never think of killing somebody with a pistol. But you eat up for the love of money. You do things you do, not for the kingdom of God, but to keep your coffers safe and to add to them. You skip church because you're tired from overworking to get more money. You sleep through worship because you do not know how to say no to your income. You violate the Sabbath, the day of the Lord, because then six days are not enough for you to get enough that you want. You have an attitude about things, and you cannot tear yourself away from the things, and that's the issue with John's preaching, bring works fit for repentance. Get content with what you're making. Live within your means. Quit cheating, lying, and stealing and then we'll think about baptizing you. Now, you want some grounds for a church waiting a while before it accepts converts and believes they're saved? We're supposed to baptize everyone that comes the first day they say it? You can't, not if you're going to be consistent. And especially in our generation, which has become accustomed to being Christian without living like a Christian, we have no choice but to make sure there are works fitting for repentance and the claims thereof. Paul in the essence of the message of saving religion, said bring forth words meet for repentance. He was not one that just loved to have converts at any cost. He took them with conditions. And then you're familiar with Acts chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But you see, that's not where it stops. The reason it's not of works is to keep men from pride. But then it says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in. If it's by grace and through faith, saving faith, it will produce good works every time. He's not double-talking. He's not saying the good work is believing so that if you believe, it'll produce believing. He means all the good works associated with the laws of God. Galatians chapter 5 tells us that faith works by love. Love obeys the commandments of God, the Bible tells us in 1 John. And those commandments are not grievous. It's become a not-too-infrequent exercise of my conscience in prayer on Saturday night to examine how much I delight in the Lord's Day to see where I really am. How much do I really look forward to a whole day set aside to do nothing but worship God, think of God, and prepare for worshiping God? Is it a grief to me? Do I begrudge the fact that I can't watch my beloved cowboys? I mean, anybody that would nowadays be a fool anyway. <laughs> do I begrudge that, though? Is there still something in me that resents the fact that God has cheated me out of what used to be a, daily, a weekly pleasure on Sunday afternoons? Do I sort of resent this religion that, if, in order to get to heaven, I've got to do it. so You see, you're living by works, if you're thinking that way. That's the whole point. The requirements of a church that you give the whole day to the Lord is not to save you by those works, but it's the requirement that will prove you are saved, so you have a right to be a church member. Why would you want to be a member of a Christian church and not be a Christian? And why would you want to claim to be a Christian if you don't think the way a Christian thinks? And a Christian thinks that the law of God is a delight. I delight to do Thy will, O oh God. I esteem all Thy precepts concerning all things to be right. Oh, how I love thy law. It is honey to my taste. Here is the love of God, first John tells us, that we keep his commandments, all of them, and that his commandments are not grievous. John chapter 14, the Lord says, He that keeps my commandments, he it is that loves me. Commandments, plural. He it is that loves me. You love the Lord? If you do, you'll keep His commandments. The Apostle Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians, my daily readings this morning, says, anyone that doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be cursed and cut off from Christ. Don't say, well, all you have to do is believe. You don't have to love Him. That's not a requirement for salvation. It absolutely is. Because when you believe Him, you love Him. And when you love Him, you obey Him. And if you don't love Him and you don't obey Him, let Him be cut off from Christ, cursed, anathema. On and on, we could quote text after text, but these ought to suffice to tell us. It's a biblical statement that faith in Christ as Savior with no reference to works that support that claim is not saving faith. Unless there are works meet for the repentance and the faith claimed, the claim is a false one. And the church is obligated not to believe it. You who've come to us in the last several years have become aware that one of our our first requirements for church membership in this place is a creditable confession of faith. We use those terms, creditable. That means believable. A confession of your personal interest in Christ that others will believe if they look at you and see the way you live. If people truly know you. And if people examine you, they'll find that your claim to believing in Christ is justified. church put that question up front when we interview prospective members. Well, there are a lot of reasons, but the essential one is that you have no right to be a member of the church of Christ unless you're born into the family of Christ. And we have no right to assume you're born into the family of Christ and thereby have a right to be in the church of Christ if your life doesn't support your claims. We don't want to send to you a recommendation to receive a new member of Christ while his life denies what he claims and thereby entangle you with perhaps with an Achan in the camp who will bring the whole house down upon you at some point, who bears your reputation into the world as well as Christ's. We're Christ's servants. We're not trying to fill his church with people of whom he's not interested We're not trying to help him get people to heaven by lowering the standards. We want to honor him and please him and obey him, and we'd rather have his members than ours. Creditable confession of faith. That's what we're talking about. Saving faith that has proof to it. Well, let me ask you a question. What are some of the works that evidence true saving faith in Christ? I've already hinted at one, but let me do a brief summary of the Ten Commandments. Uh Uh-oh, I knew he was going to get to that. Well, you should have known, because the Ten Commandments are the summary of God's law. They are summarized by the Lord Jesus in two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Which one would you rather me expound? The Ten Words of Moses or the Two of Christ? Before you answer, make sure you examine what the Two of Christ say. Love the Lord! With all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And love your neighbor, even the bad one, as you love yourself. Which one you want which which I'll do I'll work on either one of those. They're both the same. The two are the summary of the ten. The Lord is not satisfied with anything less than a wholehearted obedience. Delightful in all his law. Let's summarize the ten. There won't be ten. We're going to combine some. Here are evidences of true saving faith. When you have, in the first place, an appreciation for the uniqueness, the requirements, the delights, and the sanctity of the worship of God. When you have an appreciation for the uniqueness, the requirements, the delights, and the sanctity of the worship of God. If you have that, you're saved. Uniqueness. There's no other God. And you're glad there's not, and you don't want another. That means you own him and him alone, and you do not have your eyes set on something in this world as a substitute for God. The requirements, I mean by that what would be summarized in the second commandment not only that you only worship the true God, but that you worship Him in the way that He prescribes. In other words, you like to do it His way. You're not resenting the way He wants it done and forming your own way of worship. You're not looking for ways to circumvent God's requirements. You worship Him as commanded. You may be ignorant of some of the requirements. And I'm convinced that in our generation, there are many Christians who are worshiping wrongly in ignorance. They've not been taught. They have a sincere heart for God, and they're doing the best they can with the light they have, but they've not been given much light, and they're not reading their Bibles very openly. I'll grant that. I'll give that. But I will not grant that once knowing them, you resent them. Not if you have a heart that's turned to God. Not if you have saving faith. Not if you have eternal life. You cannot be opposed to God's requirements in worship and be a Christian at the same time. Now, how do we know whether you're opposed or not? It'll become pretty obvious over the months and years. Your habits of worship, your attendance, your vigor, what time you get here, what shape you're in when you get here, that, it, that signifies what time you start thinking about it. The, what shape you're in when you leave, which signifies how you approached it when you were here, how anxious you are to do it again, your willingness to submit to biblical exposition that tells us what worship is and how we're supposed to conduct it rather than always resisting every time a man tells you to adjust this or change that. You appreciate the requirements of worship, also the delights of worship. It's not a drudge, this is not something you dread. This is not something that you just can't stand, but you do it because you're scared if you don't do it, you may not get to go to heaven. Eternal life produces a delight in the presence of God. Now, I did not say that every time you sit in a worship service that you like every hymn, and that your emotions are always to the full, and that you don't have times of sleepiness and boredom. I I believe that would be to fly in the face of reality. I also think it would bind about ninety-eight percent of the conscience of this church to go out assuming you're not saved. I'm not prepared to say that. I am prepared to say though that the idea of being with God and God's people and hearing God's word and singing God's hymns and praying the prayers of Zion is an idea delightsome to the heart of an of a true believer. What the what what you're going to find is that you you're going to say I don't have much delight in worship. In fact. It, Closer to Scripture, you walk, the more of that you're going to feel. But you're never going to be able to say, I don't want to have it. You're never going to be able to say, I couldn't care less. You're never going to say, big deal. You're going to grieve that you don't delight in the worship of God and you're going to pursue a heart that does delight and you're going to exercise yourself to bringing that heart into delight and you're going to beg God to turn your old rotten heart into one that loves it. That's a Christian I'm talking about. I know very few people that are not Christians that ever pray that way. But more about the time they become Christians they begin to pray that way. Lord, I'm far from you. Thank God for, the, for ending our honeymoon shortly those few weeks after we were saved and making us realize there was a lot of work to be done now. You remember how it was at the beginning, the first time you had assurance that God had saved you. It was a picnic. What a wonderful life this is. Nothing but delight. And then you got into the drudge. And some of you thought it was the church's fault. Because, boy, I think it has left me alone. I would have been happy in Jesus. Now they got this church in the way they do, things. where is the church that does it my way? Where everybody's happy, the way I am. But then later on as you matured, you found out the reason for the loss of that uh, idyllic sense you had was because God had some deeper work to do in you. And they used to be just exactly where you are, and it wasn't some external church that killed it. It was your own sin that left you in need of more labor in your heart. Delight in the worship of God. Also an appreciation for the sanctity of the worship of God. Now that takes to the fourth commandment. God has sanctified his worship. He's set it apart. He's prescribed it. He's proscribed it. He has defined it. He has set a certain day for it especially. He has set a certain people for it. He has placed authorities in his church to lead it and direct it to which we're to submit. He's laid it within the confines of biblical doctrine that we're supposed to submit to, and He's brought people to do it with whom we're to be in fellowship. The sanctity of the worship of God is to be appreciated in every Christian heart. And if you don't appreciate it, you're not a saved man or woman. You love the people of God. You love the preaching. Oh, I didn't say you liked all the preaching you love the idea of the word preached. And you'll have a tendency to drink out of it the honey you can get, even if you have to go through thorns of roses to find it and get a few bee stings. You will not so concentrate on the bee sting that you'll miss the honey. You will look for the feed of the word of God and quit trying to pick apart the feeder. You'll look to Christ rather than to man. But a second evidence. And by the way, the essence of saving conversion is to turn from idols to serve the living God. That's what Thessalonica did. That's what conversion is. To turn from not appreciating the worship of God to loving it in all of its ramifications. But second, not only appreciation for the uniqueness, the requirement, the delight, the sanctity of the worship of God, but also reverence for the name of God. Now, what do we mean by that? I don't mean just that you don't ever use God's name in cussing. I don't mean just that. That's obviously included, but that's not the real essence of that commandment. It's not the foundation of it. Reverence for the name of God means reverence and due regard for his reputation and his revelation. What is the name of God? It's anything by which God may be known. The way God's known. What do you call him? How do they know who you are? They say, do you know that guy with the blonde hair and the green sweater that was sitting there? Yeah, that's John Smith. That's how they know you. You have a name. Well, it's anything whereby God may be known. Three ways. Creation. The world he's made. The universe he's put together. You can know God to some degree by his creation. Providence. The way he rules it, the way he conducts it, the way he organizes it. You see God and his ways and his acts and you come to know him. Redemption. The way he saves men from their sins. The ways that God may be known and you have regard and reverence for his name. His reputation and his revelation. You love his word. You take it seriously. You love the preachers of his word and you highly value them. You love the way he made the world, and you want to take care of it. In fact, in the Revelation, it's interested in, interesting in that passage where it says God's going to destroy certain men. says he's going to destroy those that destroy the earth. Now, am I about to get on an environmental kick? Well, there is a legitimate biblical environmental kick. And I'll tell you what, it's a shame to walk the steps, the sidewalk of this building, and to have to pick up wrappers that you have walked past and didn't even notice they were sitting there as a church, to be one of the last ones in and have them stepped on by church members because it didn't occur to you that that was something that didn't look right. Because we're so accustomed to being filthy and discarding our junk in this society. Now, I'm not taking a political position about how we ought to take care of the environment. I'm convinced that this so-called environmental movement is a hypocritical thing in most cases. I'm convinced that most of these people have a hidden agenda that has nothing at all because what they do to their own environment, their own lungs and their own wombs does not bespeak people that care about environment. But I will say that for the sake of reacting to them, we better not start destroying the earth and wasting things and desecrating what what is within our power. Regard the creation of God. Love it, learn about it, appreciate it, study it and preach it. Love the way God conducts history. Don't fuss about God's providence. Don't be a bitter, cynical individual. I tell you what, don't you tell me you have eternal life in your breast while you have that sneered look on your face constantly because you resent the way God's worked out things in your life. That's the name of God you disregard. God put His governors over you. God put the kings over you. God put the presidents over you. God gave you your parents and your husband and your wife and your children eternal life will show itself in appreciating God's providence the way he's revealed his will I wouldn't give you five cents for a man that is more dedicated to the principles of a conservative political organization than to the principles of the church of Jesus Christ I don't care how noble the cause it will never rival the cause of Christ Guard the name of God. Third, honor divinely constituted authority. Honor divinely constituted authority. Fifth commandment, honor your parents. And that, as we have studied that, includes all the authorities of our life. The words father and mother there are representative terms encompassing all the relationships of authority. Some of you think you don't have to obey the speed limit because they don't have a right to put it over you. Some of you don't think you have to pay your parking tickets because they were unjust and given it. Some of you don't think you ought to respect police officers. You teach your children to respect them. I'm well aware that they're full of corruption, but you teach your children to respect that uniform. And if you want to send them to school, you teach them to respect their teachers. Don't you send them to sit under a teacher and then criticize the teacher behind the teacher's back to your kids. If you don't like the teacher, get the kids out of the school. Teach them yourself but this attitude of resenting authority and claiming to be christian god forbid that it ever be found among us you don't have eternal life in you if you if you hate authority because that's god's law you hate he that resists the power resists god learn about authority and mold your heart to submit to it happily that's the way of eternal life. Next, regard for the sanctity of human life. It is impossible for a Christian who understands what's going on in the womb to be in favor of abortion. I was careful in the way I worded that. And I had to be careful because of my own history. I remember in the early 70s, I didn't even know what they were talking about when they talked about abortion. I wasn't even sure what that... I had no conscious conscience that was educated. I was ignorant. I really was. I also was a sinner. And I don't know which one ruled the most, but I tell you this. Our culture-wide disregard for the sanctity of human life is a living display of the absence of eternal life in it abortion is not the only place the way we feed our fat bellies and shorten our lifespan because of our indulgence of our, of our appetites the way we refuse to say no to our bodies or our children's bodies the way to, in order to protect our laziness We would rather stop off at the fast food fat farm than to prepare a meal with vitamins and minerals and roughage and whatever. I'm not talking about an exception to the rule, but I mean for the purpose of avoiding the trouble. A culture filled with a disregard for the sanctity of human life. We ought to put to death as a generation those that murder people. And in the doing so, we regard the sanctity of the innocent life that was taken. And we remove those that will continue to kill. But in our efforts to be nice and kind to the murderer, we let him murder more. And so to whom are we being kind and to whom are we being cruel? In the name of kindness, we're being cruel. In in an effort at war, brethren, I will not make a public statement about what we ought to do in the desert. But I'll tell you this, I'll make a statement as to what a moral character ought to do. If we're going to pretend to fight, we ought to fight. If we don't want to fight, we ought not talk about fighting. They used to tell me, don't pull out the gun unless you're going to shoot it. One of the first things you train somebody when, in firearms is, don't draw it unless you plan to use it. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not making my, tell it, I did not tell you what my position is in the desert. But I'll tell you this, if you have moral regard for the sanctity of human life, you will not, in order to pretend to save it, end up killing more. You know how many people had already been killed in Japan by our conventional bombs before Mr. Truman made the decision to drop the atomic one? More than died in both Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Let's get off our pious high horse. Be honest. You say, what does that have to do with eternal life? It has to do with people regarding life where it really counts. Thou shalt not kill With all respect to our governor, I do disagree with his position that because the Bible says thou shalt not kill, we should not put to death murderers, but we should allow people to put to death their unborn. I do not believe he can defend that logically or biblically or historically. I'm opposed to that position with respect to him as my governor, and I will continue to preach against that position. Because the Bible requires that we have regard for the sanctity of human life, and as in the very chapter in which the murder commandment is given, God prescribes capital punishment in Israel. In the same chapter. We have a nation that hates life and pretends to love it with fake words and political jargon. And it proves that we're not Christian. Also reverence for the sanctity of human sexuality and marriage thou shalt not commit adultery if you have eternal life abiding within you you hate sexual impurity you love your spouse either the one you have or the one you're going to have one of the things you ought to train your children to do is to love the person they're going to marry before they ever meet them And one of the ways they can love them is to keep themselves pure. Do not deceive yourselves. One of the major reasons for the continued breakdown of marriages in this country is the absence of virginity at the altar. You think that doesn't have an effect on marriage? I will not embarrass this congregation, but I would say that the biggest troubles of some of your marriages was because you didn't keep yourself before you got married. God's been gracious to you. But I tell you, you could testify if you were called upon and say, He's telling the truth. You could say, It caused me and my godly wife a lot of problems. Even though God forgave us, it created problems in our relationship. Now, in a world in which people don't even know the forgiveness of God, how much problems does it cause? You've already violated the sanctity of marriage. You've already disregarded your beloved. And you enter a marriage having already divided your heart with another or a multitude of others. And you think that by magic that's going to go away. And what you've done to your soul is going to disappear. It doesn't happen that way. What you do to yourself when you're premaritally unfaithful is condition your body and your soul not to be devoted to any one person. And it becomes a fight of your life truly to adore your one spouse. It's a constant fight. You find yourself distracted and selfish and lustful and a a skirt walks by and because you've conditioned yourself that there's something that you didn't have to guard with your soul and your blood, something in you says, it's okay, you've already gone further than this anyway. God puts a natural barrier in every one of us at birth and fornication breaks it down. And you can't build it back up. The men who have been unfaithful to their wives either before or during their marriages hardly ever again will ever be able to live a day without undue tremendous temptation. It's a constant fight from now on. If you have eternal life in you, you hate what it costs you and what it costs others and you don't ever want to do it again. You hate the impurities that saturate our society. You hate the disloyalty between husbands and wives that is wringing the roof down on our house estate. You love purity and loyalty in marriage. You love being satisfied with the wife of your youth rather than always comparing her body to others. What a wretched bunch of men. We are eternal life produces a different kind of worldview, and it just invades our view of marriage and sexuality. It also produces reference for the sanctity of personal property. Thou shalt not steal. That means when you're taking a test, you use your own knowledge, and not your neighbor's, to give your answers. It means that when you're borrowing money, you pay the debt on time, or you become a thief. And you don't excuse it by saying, time's changed. You'll have to understand, dear creditor. You reverence the sanctity of personal property. Marxism despises personal property, and it has failed. You cannot continue an economy without the regard for personal property. There's sanctity in personal property. God put it into the law, and we must regard it. You must regard and reverence the sanctity of the truth. And if you have eternal life in you, you will. You must be relatively ruthless in keeping your word. How dare you claim to have eternal life and have no concept of what it means to keep your word? You shouldn't have to sign a contract to prove something. You ought to be able to, by your word, that ought to bind you. Well, we didn't write anything down, so uh, even though I told you that it's not legal, I don't have to, as you do if you're a Christian. If you said it, you've got to do it, my friend. The Bible makes it clear that a man that's going to make it to the high hill of Jehovah is a man that vows to his own hurt but does not defer to pay it. Meaning, he made a promise, after made the promise, Something changed and now it's going to really cost him to fulfill his word. He fulfilled it as a matter of conscience. And the Bible equates that kind of man with the kind of man that gets into the fellowship of God. Last, contentment with and gratitude for the provision of God. Eternal life produces an, a disposition of growing contentment with and gratitude for what God has been pleased to give me. It is incongruous for a man to be a a Christian and to live constantly resentful of what he doesn't have. If you're resenting something God has given you, you better repent of that. You lay claims to the betrayal of your confession if you're discontent. I didn't say satisfied with the kind of person you are, I didn't say that you shouldn't have holy ambition to improve your lot in life through legitimate biblical means. Nor did I say you should not try to improve your income by increasing labor and increasing training. I did say that you must be content with what you have and thankful for what you have if you're to lay claim on having eternal life. Thou shalt not covet. A covetous man is an idolater. Get rid of it. Well, in this... Brief expose of the law of God. Perhaps we can see what we mean. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He that says he knows God but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And if you keep his commandments, if you have eternal life in you, they'll not be grievous. What are his commandments? We've briefly summarized them. If we've spoken to your conscience at some point, what do you do? If we've found you out, if the scriptures have brought you and shut you up to guilt... Repent. Confess and forsake the sin. If you have eternal life, it'll be just like snapping. It'll be a knee-jerk reaction. If, it's been re- if you've seen it, you'll say, Oh, I didn't see it! Thank God for being faithful to me. Lord, forgive me and change me. That'll be evidence that you have life in you. But if you're able to sit here, after what we've said, and it's been, been fairly simple, and say, he has no right to tell me this stuff. It sounds legalistic to me. I don't want to listen to this. I've got a couple of things in my life that I'm not about to give up for that preacher. My friend, you're not being asked to give it up for this preacher. I'm not so ignorant as to think that the Holy Spirit has not already pointed out to you one or two things. What do you do? Come to grips with reality. Repent and bring forth works. Sitting for repentance. Well, in order to do so, you need grace. But I tell you, there's never been a person that has acknowledged his sin and come honestly to God and said, Lord, I see it. I do love this sin. And for the life of me, I cannot extricate my heart from its love for that sin. Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't plan to continue. I don't want to continue. Save me from my sins. God will save you. He'll give you grace to depart from your sins. He'll forgive you of your sins. And you'll have eternal life. The only people that can be described as being true recipients of eternal life are those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as he's presented in the gospel and who live in accordance with the fruits of such faith. Examine yourself to see if you'd be in the faith. If you're not come to Christ in true faith with full commitment to his way and his law and you'll receive the gift of everlasting life and we'll see the difference if you are one that has confessed Christ but there are things that have matched up wrongly with your character as we've described the law don't go home without confessing and repenting don't take it home with you Don't bludgeon your conscience. Forsake it now. Give it to God. Turn from it in proof that you possess eternal life. If it has to do with worship, if it has to do with God's reputation and the way you live in the world, if it has to do with your marriage and your attitude toward the sanctity of marriage, if it has to do with your children, if it has to do with authority, if it has to do with uh, personal property, with the truth, with being contented in your heart, whatever the areas are, if you have eternal life you'll correct according to the scriptures. If you are not willing to correct it, you're lost. And you need to come to Christ to be saved. Or you perish forever. May God give us grace to conform to his word. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that you would take these loaves and fish and multiply them and take this seed of your word and make it to germinate and to grow up and bear fruit unto eternal life. O Lord, we thank you that the likes of us are able to confess that God has made us alive. We thank you for the gift of life in your Son. We bless your name that such a privilege would be afforded to us, such a blessing. Help us to understand it, make us grateful for it, and cause us, O Lord, to walk in the light of it. And if your word has uncovered, any who have kidded themselves, we pray that this morning you would free them from the bondage of their illusions, and that you would save them. Hear our prayer and honor your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>